A relative discovered the murder victims Friday on this farmstead south of Humboldt. The victims were Tina Brandon of Lincoln, Philip Devine of Fairfield, Iowa, and Lisa Lambert of Humboldt. She lived at the farmhouse with her infant son, who was not harmed in the attack. The official briefing did not explain what could have sparked the slayings or what the other two victims were doing at Lisa Lambert's house. But the county attorney did reveal one strange detail. Tina Brandon posed as a man named Brandon. What's up, Donuts? Happy Pride Month. Today is the last of four episodes dealing with the members of the Pride community. I'm recently learning of this story and it kind of contributed to me wanting to do this podcast. Before I go any further, I just want to let you know that this episode may have triggers of kidnapping, molestation, suicide, and bullying. And I say and bullying because it triggered me being a victim of a bully up until I was in the ninth grade. The girl was named Nicole O. And yeah, I want her to know who I'm talking about if she listens. She did horrible things to me when I was little and I never really wanted to fight her because I thought she was my friend and you just don't fight friends. And that was my mindset. No matter what my mother and my brother Jimmy told me, I wanted her to just like me. And in retrospect, when I look back, I only had one friend in those days, and her name was DeMarla. And DeMarla, I just want to thank you because you were the prototype of what I wanted my friends to be like. The trust, the loyalty, and the camaraderie. My whole family saw you as a friend. The things that you were able to do and the freedom that you was able to have in my household, I realize now that my mother never would have allowed Nicole to do that. And that really should have spoke volumes to me then, but I was a child. However, to Nicole, you needed an outlet because your mother and stepfather both were alcoholics. No shade, but facts. And your house was in total shamble. I guess if my life was the way yours was, I would be angry all the time as well. I forgive you for the act, but you can still go to hell. With that being said, this is Fried Doe True Crime Podcast, and this is Unveiling the Truth, the Brandon Tina story. On December 12, 1972, a 16-year-old Joanne Brandon gave birth to a little baby girl named Tina Renee Brandon in Lincoln, Nebraska. Tina and her older sister, Tammy, had a father who was 19 years old, he died in a drunken driving accident eight months before Tina was born. So at 19, Joanne got married and that marriage lasted five years. Joanne went to community college, but she became disabled and was forced to support her family while collecting disability checks and worked as a clerk in a woman's retail store in Lancaster to support her family. And both of her children would end up attending the local Catholic school in Lincoln, Nebraska. And between 1977 and 1981, at the age of five to nine years old, Tina and Tammy was molested by the same uncle. But this was never reported. Tina started behaving as a tomboy and Joanne thought that it was a phase, but it wasn't a phase. Shortly after puberty, Tina began to realize that she was a transgender. After this, I'm gonna start identifying Tina as a boy and I'm going to identify Tina's boy name as Brandon. Brandon and his sister Tammy attended St. Mary's Elementary School and Prius High School in Lincoln, Nebraska. 
During his second year, Brandon rejected Christianity after he protested to the priest at Prius X regarding the Christianity views on abstinence and homosexuality. He also began rebelling at school by violating the school dress code policy to dress up in more masculine fashions. Brandon was expelled from high school three days before graduating because of this whole situation. During the first semester of his senior year, a United States Army recruiter visited the high school, encouraging students to enlist in the armed forces. Brandon enlisted in the United States Army shortly after his 18th birthday in hopes to serve a tour of duty in Operation Desert Storm. However, he failed the written exam by listing his sex as male. Because Joanne didn't recognize her born daughter as what she wanted to be, Brandon moved out and moved in with a friend who later suspected Brandon for stealing and she kicked him out. So because of that, Brandon had to move back in with Joanne. During this time, he had obtained a fake ID and that fake ID's name was Billy Branson. Okay, let me give you a side story real quick. I have a brother from another mother and we have known each other forever. So he identifies as a gay man and he is a member and part of the pride community. When he first started being comfortable in his skin, he would dress up. When he dressed up in a wig and things like that, the first name that he got was Tiffany. Now, let me tell you about this friend. This friend is over six feet tall. He's a very chocolate gentleman. He is no Tiffany. When I think of a Tiffany, I think of a personality like the movie White Chicks. I think of something like that. So later he's gotten into his skin. He's gotten more versed into, you know, his dressing up and things like that. And he named himself Ebony. And that was moving in the right direction a little bit. Now he's totally comfortable with who he is. And guess what his name is? His name is Keisha. Keisha is a round away name. Keisha is the bamboo earrings, at least three pair, like LL said. He is a Keisha, and it's just so funny to me of the transition, but I'm not tripping about none of these names. But you do have to admit some of these names depict some type of personality in your brain. And with me, those names depict a certain type of personality, which I just shared to you. So Billy Branson just didn't seem right. At, for that face of Brandon to me. So let's continue. One night, the girl named Liz called the house. So at that time, people could call your home and you can strike up a conversation with them. And that is what Brandon did. So Brandon gave Liz that name of Billy Branson. So Liz had a 14 year old friend named Heather who ultimately became Brandon's girlfriend. And Brandon moved in with Heather and her mother under the rules that Brandon was a physical boy. Brandon wanted to shower his girlfriends with flowers and gifts, but Brandon didn't have no job. So Brandon started forging checks and got arrested, but the charges were dropped. After that, Brandon dropped the Billy Branson name and he decided to flip his name from Tina Brandon to Brandon Tina. So in January, 1992, Brandon, attempted to commit suicide by swallowing a bottle of antibiotics. They took him to the Lancaster County Crisis Center and was put on suicide watch. And there he was diagnosed with a gender disorder. This is when he revealed to his therapist that he was molested by his uncle. 
but because of these sessions were sometimes accompanied by his mother and sister, he was reluctant to discuss his sexuality during these particular sessions. The counseling sessions ended two weeks later. In 1993, after some legal troubles, Brandon moved to Falls City, Nebraska, where he presented himself as a man and he became friends with several residents. After moving into the home of Lisa Lambert, Brandon became friends with Lisa's friend, 18-year-old Lana Tisdale, and became associated with ex-convicts John Lauder and Marvin Thomas Neeson. So, on December 19, 1993, Brandon was arrested for forging checks. Lana's father gave her uh, a check with his just his signature on it. She was to go to a beauty shop and get herself a perm. Well, Brandon was in jail. She went ahead and took the check to Hinky Dinkies and wrote it out for $250, which was enough bond to get Brandon out of jail. She tried to get him out of jail and she could not do it because at that time she was only, I believe, 18 or she was not old enough to do it. So she gave Tom Neeson the money and Tom went and bonded Brandon out. And uh, they went to Tom Neeson's house and this is where they stayed. So because Brandon was on the female section of the jail, Lana learned that Brandon was a transgender. When Lana later questioned Brandon about his gender, he told her that he was a homorphodite and were, was pursuing a sex change operation. And I'm like, hermaphrodite, what are you talking about? I went home and looked it up in the dictionary. I had no idea. What is a hermaphrodite, you know? And I'm like, so what's this mean, you know? And it says something about an animal in the dictionary. So I was like really freaking out. I'm dating an animal. <laughs> On December 24th, 1993, during a Christmas Eve party, Thomas and John grabbed Brandon and forced him to remove his pants in front of everybody, proving to Lana that Brandon had a uvula. Lana looked only by force and said nothing. John and Thomas later assaulted Brandon and forced him into the car and no one did nothing. They drove Brandon to an area by a meatpacking plant in Richmond County where they assaulted and gang raped Brandon. Um, that man goes, John, I need to talk to you. I said, okay, walk in the bathroom. Walk in the bathroom. John turned around and held the door. And John didn't even want to the tub. I said, back up and hit me again. I fell on the floor and kicked me in the legs. I hung up on the back. And he picked me up with my coat, carried me out to the car on my coat. I got in the back seat because when I knew something was going to happen, I got some water. I did bad with him. I did quit. Tom told me, you know, you need to make it hard. And he goes, right after he said that, he said, you need to then they returned to Thomas' house and ordered Brandon to take a shower. Brandon escaped from Thomas's bathroom by kicking the window with his bare feet and climbing out the window. He then ran one mile or 1.6 kilometers to Lana's house. There he told Lana what happened. Lana convinced him to file a police report, even though Thomas and John told him if he told the police that they would, quote unquote, silence him permanently. Trigger warning. Tom, held your arms. Which way was he standing? Beside you, behind you, or what? 
How'd he hold you? Right. And then he took and Tom or uh, John under your pants, right? He pulled your pants down how far? Past your knees. How far did he pull your underpants down? And what did you have in your underpants? Nothing in your underpants? He's talking about earlier, I had a sock, but no, he pulled me in there, didn't he? He didn't have a sock. Did you run around once while the sock in your pants make you look like a boy? Yeah. Alright, so after he pulled your pants down, he seen you as a girl, what did he do? Did he ponder you any? Yeah. He didn't ponder you any, huh? Doesn't that kind of amaze you? After he pulled your pants down, he been wanting to take you to bed, and you told him no, that you was a boy, and he couldn't do that? Doesn't that kind of get your attention somehow that he would have put his hands in your pants and play with you a little bit? Huh? I don't want to. I can't believe that if he pulled your pants down and you're a female that he didn't stick his hands in you. Or your finger in you. I didn't. I can't believe he didn't. A victim should never be treated this way. Brandon also went to the emergency room where a standard rape kit was assembled but later lost. How convenient. So Sheriff Charles Lutz, he's the one that questioned Brandon about the rape. John and Thomas learned of the report and began searching for Brandon. They did not find Brandon. And on December 28th, three days later, the police questioned them. Let's talk about the assault of Tina Brandon. Did you physically assault Tina Brandon in your home on December 25th? Yes. Did you punch her? Yes. Did you kick her? Not that I can recall. When you're out in the country with Tina Brandon, before you sexually assaulted her, did you punch and kick her? Yes. Did you beat I her about the face? Me. I did not kick her. I'm sorry. Did you, did you beat her about the face? I punched her, yes. Did you then sexually assault her? Yes. Did you, did you then beat her after you had sexually assaulted her? I beat her, yes. Why did you hit her? Because I was upset. Oh, I see. You just sexually assaulted her, raped her, and you were upset. So you then you need her in the stomach and threw her to the ground. Yes. Sheriff Lux declined to arrest Thomas and John because he said, quote, what kind of person is she? The first few times we arrested her, she was putting herself off as a guy. Around 1 o'clock a.m. on December 31st, 1993, John and Thomas drove to Lisa's house and kicked the door down and broke in. They found Lisa in the bed and demanded to know where Brandon was. Lisa refused to tell them. Thomas searched around and found Brandon underneath the bed. They grabbed Brandon and shot him once into his chin and the bullet came out into, out of his left eye. Brandon dropped to the ground. Thomas Neeson testified in court that he had noticed that Brandon was twitching and asked John for a knife, at which Thomas stabbed Brandon a few times to ensure that he was dead. I took a step over which would have put me directly in front of Brandon. Why did you do that? At that point I asked John Lauder for the knife or if he still had the knife. And did he respond to you? He handed me the knife. Why did you want the knife? To stab Tina Brandon. Why were you looking to stab her at that time? Make sure she was dead. Did you have some impression that she wasn't yet dead? Yes. What was that? She was twitching. Can you tell me what you did to ensure that she was dead? I took the knife out of John Lauder's hand and opened it 
I reached down with my left hand and grabbed Tina Brandon's right shoulder and pulled her towards me at the same time of pushing the knife towards her and I stabbed her. Men asked Lisa if there were anybody else in the house and she replied, Philip Devine, who was at the wrong place at the wrong time. He was dating Lana's sister and was staying with her for a while after an altercation that they had. Before leaving the room to go look for Philip, Thomas shot Lisa. He found Philip in another room and he brought him into the living room, sat him down on the couch and shot him twice in the head and chest. He then went back into Lisa's room, shot her two more times, and then Thomas Neeson and John Lauder left the farm home, not before putting Lisa's 18-month-old son into the crib and leaving him there. The two men then left and threw their weapons and gloves into the frozen river and returned back to Fall City. December 31st. 1993, Lisa's mother showed up at the farm. And I knocked again. And when I knocked the second time, I said, I could hear Tanner. I could hear the baby crying then in the background. And I thought, well, that's strange that she's not getting up to take care of the baby. I knocked two or three times. And then I decided I'm just going on in. And as soon as, of course, as soon as I stepped into the living room, then I, well, and at first, I think I denied there was anything wrong. I just seen this Negro sitting on the floor with the coffee table over his lap. And I thought, this is strange, but yet, you know, and I knew then there was something wrong, but yet I was just telling myself, you know, there wasn't. And I just walked right on through the house. The baby was just screaming. And so I just walked right on in there and walked straight to his crib, didn't look at anything else, and picked him up. And when I turned to leave, then I looked over to the bed. Of course, I could tell when I went in and that there was something wrong in there because I just looked across the bed and seen Lisa on the far side next to the window, and I knew I could tell by looking there was nothing I could do to help her anymore, that I needed to help Tanner and to get help there, to get law people there. They were arrested that afternoon, which Thomas told deputies he had witnessed John Lauder shoot three people to death in Humboldt. My brother always told me no loyalty among thieves. Police went to the river where they retrieved the gun and weapons, including the sheath holding the knife, which was engraved with John Lauder's name, tying them both to the murders. So Thomas accused John of committing the murders in exchange for a reduced sentence. Thomas admitted to being an accessory to rape and murder. Thomas also testified against Lauder and was sentenced to life in prison. Lauder denied the variations of Thomas' testimony and his testimony was discredited. The jury found John guilty of murder and sentenced him to death. Boy, these killers out here, they will sit here and kill six, seven, 12 people but soon as they get caught, they want to plead some type of deal so they won't get the death penalty. Go figure. In September 2007, Thomas recanted his, his testimony against John. He claimed that he was the only one to shoot Brandon and that Lauder had not committed the murders. 
In 2009, Lauder's appeal used in Thomas's new testimony to assert the claim of innocence was rejected by the Nebraska Supreme Court. Following John Lauder's sentence in 1996, Saturday Night Live aired a segment in which the comedian Norm MacDonald joked. And finally, in Falls City, Nebraska, John Lauder has been sentenced to death for attempting to kill three people in which prosecutors call a plot to silence a cross-dressing female who had accused him of rape. Now, this might strike some viewers as harsh, but I believe everyone involved in this story should die. Upon reviewing the show, NBC agreed that the line was inappropriate and should not be aired and said that it would ensure that similar incidents would not happen in the future. Joanne Brandon sued Richardson County and Sheriff Lux for failing to protect Brandon's death and being an indirect cause. She won the case, which was heard in September 1999 in Falls City and was awarded $80,000. Then it was reduced by 85% based on the responsibility of John and Thomas and said 1% of the blame was Brandon's. This led to a remaining judgment of $17,000. In 2001, the Nebraska Supreme Court reversed this reduction of the earlier award reinstating the full 80,000 reward for mental suffering. In 1999, there was a biography film entitled Boys Don't Cry, starring Hilary Swank. For her performance, Hilary Swank, she won an Academy Award portraying Brandon Tina. In her acceptance speech, she thanked Brandon and she called Brandon Brandon and she her pronouns that she used for Brandon was a he. Joanne didn't like it. She didn't like it because Hilary Swank was up there thanking Brandon calling Brandon a he and she said that she's tired of everybody taking credit for her her daughter and calling Brandon a she but in 2013 she decided to say that she accepted Brandon for who Brandon was and that they had a platform to voice their opinions and she was glad about that which she was talking about transgenders. Philip Elliott Devine is buried in Wright Cemetery in Fairfield, Iowa. Lisa Marie Lambert is buried in Pawnee City Cemetery in Pawnee City, Nebraska. And Brandon Tina is buried in Lincoln Memorial Park in Lincoln, Nebraska. Inscribed on Brandon's headstone, it says Tina R. Brandon, December 12, 1972 to December 31, 1993, daughter, sister, and friend. You know, it's really sad on Joanne's part that she just couldn't give Brandon his last wish. Really? All because of your insecurities, your homophobicness, or whatever it may have been, you couldn't give this man his last wish. No other wishes is coming after that. This is his last thing. The Brandon Tina story continues to have a lasting impact on our society. Through the documentary, The Brandon Tina Story, and the increased awareness it generates, his legacy lives on. He has become an icon for transgender rights and a symbol of the struggle faced by countless individuals striving to be true to themselves. As we reflect on Brandon's story, it is crucial to recognize the importance of empathy and understanding. Each person's journey of self-discovery and self-acceptance is unique. And it is our responsibility to foster an environment of tolerance and acceptance for all.
So let us remember Brandon Tina and honor his memory by actively working towards a society where everyone can freely express their gender identity without fear or violence. Together, we can create a world that embraces diversity and celebrate the beauty of each other's individual unique journey. Up next is my girl V for this week's missing segment. Hello, on this episode of Missing, we're going to be featuring Kara Hyde from Hamilton, Ohio. Kara was last seen December 5th, 2021. Kara is 5'6", she weighs 100 pounds, she is 24 years old, she has blonde hair and brown eyes. Kara has a mole above her upper lip and Kara also has tattoos on her forearms and upper thighs. Kara was last seen in a vicinity of the 2200 block of Grand Boulevard at 1.33 p.m. If you have any information, please call Detective Wynn at 513-868-5811 or Crime Stoppers at 513-352-3040. All tips are confidential and there is a $4,000 reward available. Let's get Kara home back safe to her family. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to click that follow button and give me a five-star review because that does help me a lot. Or if you have any insight on this episode, case suggestions, or you just want to say what's up to your girl, you can hit that link and you can do it by voice. And that message will show up on the next episode. I really do want to hear from you guys. Until next time, Donuts, please stay safe, stay vigilant, and please always, always, always trust your instincts, child. That's my best friend.